Welcome to the Words Matter Library. I'm so excited to have with us today David Priest, who is going to talk about his new book, How to Get Rid of a President, History's Guide to Removing Unpopular, Unable, or Unfit Chief Executives. Thanks so much for being with us, David. It's great to be here. I just wish I would have written a book that was relevant to our times. (laughs) Well, David, you have such a fascinating background, and we're right there at the middle of political turmoil during your years at the CIA. Talk about that background a little bit so that our listeners understand how unique your perspective is. Sure. The most dramatic incident when I was there was, of course, 9-11. And that that changed everything in the intelligence world. And I was working counterterrorism before 9-11 and, of course, after. But I translated that into the briefing job where I took the president's daily brief downtown every day to my customers, as we called them in the intel business, who were John Ashcroft, the attorney general, and the FBI director, a guy named Bob Mueller. No one's heard of him since. Oh, he's not in the news at all these days. Yeah. So that job is, it's the the tip of the spear when it comes to intelligence. Why do you collect all this information? Why do we spend roughly $70 billion a year on intelligence to get it to the top decision makers to make better decisions, or at least help them to make better decisions? And that was part of my job, is to make sure that that information got to the people who needed it. In this case, those customers who back in those days, every day after my briefing, would go up Pennsylvania Avenue and meet with the president who had just received his PDB briefing. So that was my experience with the intelligence side of things and the subject of my first book, which was really about presidents behaving well, people who received intelligence, generally using it, informing their decisions. And I thought I needed to balance it with this book, which is about how presidents break bad. Yeah, it's a book about bad, 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 terrible presidents. And it's darkly humorous, which I take some comfort in because, you know, looking at some of these really extraordinarily troubled executives a century later, they don't it doesn't seem as bad because we're, you know, out of the line of fire and things calm down and the systems are strong, institutions are strong. But let's just go through the premise of the book a little bit. You give all of the categories of departure for a sitting president. There's you have presidents who are rejected by their own political party. You have presidents who their opponents push them out. You have presidents who are so unpopular that everyone wants to get rid of them. Presidents who die, presidents who are assassinated. What are the other categories that I'm missing? The main category, it's actually where I end the book, is the way the founders intended, which is you vote them out. When when they run for re-election, if you don't like the job they've done, you, you go to the ballot box and you say, you're fired. And that is the way I think 10 presidents have left office. That That is, they were actually on the ballot. They got the nomination of their party again. But the voters said, yeah, we don't, we don't want you anymore. So that that is by default the best method. The founders were very conscious about why they did a four-year term and why they wanted us to be able to get rid of presidents uh, through the ballot box. But sometimes four years seems like a long time. So there are all these other methods that people will use, including a couple in the Constitution, impeachment and a declaration of disability. But I tried to take a wider view in this. A lot of people are talking about impeachment. A lot of people are writing about impeachment. But it, it's not all about impeachment. There are other ways to disempower a president. I think that's a great point. I came to this as somebody who studied history at the 
undergraduate level and at the graduate level. And I have to say, first of all, it's a fine work of history as, as, as I, have, I have ever read. But more importantly, to Elise's point and just reviewing it, when I looked at the title and started listening on Audible, I said, well, OK, this is a how-to guide, but it's never been done. But then I realized, obviously, that it has been done and it's been done much more often. Talk about how you – you know, one of the things that I thought was very interesting was we discussed the presidents in the 1850s and how they were sidelined. And just you know, kind of start back there. You know, I, I, we can probably skip Tyler, but, you know, in, in, in the yeah, first the one. People but, at the time largely did too. <laughs> <laughs> there, there are so many presidents that even if we know their names, and mostly that's because as kids maybe we were asked to memorize them for a class, but, but we don't know anything about them. And what I discovered in digging into their their stories, there's a real good reason for that because a lot of them were bad. A lot of the 18 the Franklin Pe- the Franklin Pierce discussion. Well, that's a tragic story. I was going to say depressed me. Absolutely, Franklin Pierce, uh, president. Uh, he was considered like the handsome man who would ride into the White House. He had a friend of his named Nathaniel Hawthorne, famous author, who wrote a glowing campaign biography of him to help get him into the Oval Office. But after he was elected, just before he was inaugurated, there was a train derailment. And he and his wife and his young son, whom he treasured, were injured. Uh, the problem is he, he and his wife were only mildly injured. But his son, well, he, he was crushed and he was nearly decapitated. And it was a sight that haunted Mrs. Pierce for the rest of her life and probably the president too. And it led me to research to find out how much is depression a disability? And I found a study from 2006 that some doctors looked at all of the presidents up to that point, and they found that at least 25% of the presidents to that point had a diagnosable psychological condition, a disability, uh, generally depression, massive depression. That's something we don't talk about. We're better at talking about it now than obviously we would have been in the 1800s. But that's the kind of detail in history that I wasn't aware of just by knowing the names of the presidents. But it gave me a little bit of optimism, too, because I figured out we actually get through those times when there's a president who undermines institutions when there's a president who is not fully up to the job temporarily or permanently. We get through it and we survive as a nation, even thrive as a nation. So there's a note of optimism even in that dark humor throughout the book. Well, there was one president, the portrayal I was very troubled by, learned a lot that I didn't know. And let's go to chapter and listen to some of the audible audio of a passage that really resonated with me for not such great reasons. The President of the United States was both a racist and a real challenge to get along with. He routinely called blacks inferior. He bluntly stated that no matter how much progress they made, they must remain so. He openly called critics disloyal, even treasonous. He liberally threw insults like candy during public speeches. He rudely ignored answers he didn't like. He regularly put other people into positions they didn't want to be in, then blamed them when things went sour. His own bodyguard later called him destined to conflict, a man who found it impossible to conciliate or temporize. But the nation's politicians simply had to interact with Andrew Johnson, for he had become the legitimate, constitutionally ordained chief executive upon Abraham Lincoln's death by assassination. Their path for managing this choleric man reveals that a president need not be kicked out of office to be removed from power. 
wow, pretty uncanny how much that reminds me of a certain sitting president today and not in a good way. David, tell us the story of President Johnson. Yes, Andrew Johnson, the first President Johnson, uh, came into office by a, a historical quirk. Abraham Lincoln, when he ran for re-election in 1864, he wanted to have what he called a national union ticket, Republicans and Democrats. The problem was not too many Democrats were willing to sign on with the Republicans at the time. A lot of them had gone to support the Confederacy, but a lot of them in the North were actually opposed to the war effort. So he brought in Andrew Johnson, the one senator who did not walk out of the Senate during the controversy when states started seceding. And this really was such a great idea in theory. Yes. But in practice. It's the kind of thing that I've heard people talking about now, which is let's get a national union ticket of of two centrists who can get along, who can actually uh, fight against the extremes and move the country forward on a basis of rule of law and shared uh, belief in institutions. It's a great idea. The problem was it involved Andrew Johnson, and he was just... A bad man. But Lincoln vouched – I was very struck by when you d- detailed how Lincoln vouched for him and when members of Lincoln's party had issues with Johnson, Lincoln said, no, 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 he's OK. He's yeah. OK. And, but he wasn't around. Abraham Lincoln has many qualities and the more I learn about him, the more I respect him, not because he's an idol but because he was such a flawed man and yet he still rose above it. And one of his best qualities was that compassion, empathy, the, the ability to give people a second chance – and he definitely did that with Andrew Johnson because Andrew Johnson did not acquit himself well when he started as vice president. Lincoln stood up for him. But just a well, few months later – he was literally later, drunk when he started. It appears so. It appears that he liked the whiskey a little too much <laughs> and he was babbling at his own swearing-in ceremony. And people were looking around thinking, how, how did we get this guy so close to the Oval Office? Uh, the, the funny thing is he became president just a few months later. And he actually did a lot of things that Abraham Lincoln probably would not have done. And you had this – I don't want to say constitutional crisis because all of politics is not a crisis of the Constitution. But you had Congress doing everything they possibly could to stymie this bad president. They were passing legislation that was later ruled unconstitutional as a way of boxing him in. Well, and that was interesting about this too because to Elisa's point, that the characteristics you describe of the first president, Johnson, sound very familiar. The characteristics that you describe of the legislative branch sound completely antithetical to what we see now and what we see going on. Talk about that factor of how that Congress took the lead. It was a unique time. You had more than two-thirds of the Senate, which is a very important fraction in one way of removing a president, because if there's going to be an impeachment and a conviction, the conviction in the Senate has to be a two-thirds majority. But you had a two-thirds majority of Republicans, and Andrew Johnson was not a Republican. So if he was found to have committed crimes in the impeachment trial in the House or in the impeachment resolution in the House, you needed that two-thirds to convict him, and it looked like that could happen. Now, it didn't, but it was really close. Andrew Johnson almost got removed from office. That's a very different situation than now when the, the Senate – We don't know the exact count on the seats yet, but 51, 52, 53, somewhere in their seats. Well, it doesn't seem like that's a body that's going to convict the president unless the special counsel investigation comes up with something that is so hardcore on the issues of criminal conspiracy or obstruction of justice that it's the tide turning in the way that we saw with the Nixon hearings when even Republicans said, Mr. President, it's time to go. If you want to hear more of this interview, look for the full episode on Monday. Now, here are Steve, Elise, and Adam with an Audible Words Matter Library holiday special offer. 
We want to thank our partner, Audible. If there's a book you like, and we read a lot of them around here, chances are you can find it on Audible. You can choose three titles every month, one audiobook and two Audible originals that you can't hear anywhere else. You can listen on any device, anytime, anywhere, at home, at the gym, or running errands, or on the subway. We put out some important and relevant titles like Steve Kornacki's The Red and the Blue, Tom Ricks's Churchill and Orwell, Born Trump by Emily Jane Fox, Profiles Encouraged by John F. Kennedy, and Columbine by Dave Cullen. All of those titles into the Words Matter Library. And Steve, tell them about our Words Matter special offer. Right now, for a limited time, you can get three months of Audible for just six ninety-five a month. That's more than half off the regular price. So get yourself to listening. While you're at it, think about giving the gift of Audible to someone on your list. Go to audible.com slash words matter or text words matter to 500-500. That's audible.com slash words matter or text words matter to 500-500. Audible, because words matter. That's right. Audible, because words matter. Audible.